It's Wednesday, February 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The stakes are high for Amazon. Starting February 8th, workers at their Bessemer, Alabama warehouse will be voting whether to unionize or not. If they vote to do so, it will be the first Amazon warehouse in the U.S. to have union representation. This could have a big impact on the company, as other warehouses could also push for the same. In the meantime, Amazon is doing everything they can to discourage workers from voting yes. Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, there's a lot of concern about the coronavirus variants floating around, especially as we're making a hard push to get as many people vaccinated as we can. One of the big questions with all of this is why are these different strains emerging now? One answer to this is time. The virus has always been mutating since the beginning, and these variants can be a response to increasing herd immunity, response to treatments, and evolutionary changes due to the time it has been circulating. Brian Resnick, senior science reporter at Vox, joins us for more on the COVID variants. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Unless some legal actions by Amazon prevail, those workers will vote or have the opportunity to vote starting on Sunday. Joining us now is Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Great to be here, Oscar. We have an interesting story that has to do with Amazon and unions. And anything that happens with a big company like Amazon has far-reaching implications for the rest of its business, things like that. So this has to do with a story in Amazon's Bessemer, Alabama warehouse where workers there are going to be voting pretty soon whether they want to unionize or not. There's, uh, you know, a lot at stake, uh, as I said, you know, if something passes here in this one warehouse, that could lead to other warehouses across the country wanting to also unionize. So, Jay, start us off. What are we seeing here in this, uh, this Amazon story? There are a group of workers at a warehouse that Amazon just opened last March in Bessemer, Alabama, which is just outside of Birmingham, and they want to organize a union. They filed with the NLRB to form the union. The NLRB has determined that there are 5,805 workers that would be considered part of the bargaining unit. And so unless some legal actions by Amazon prevail, those workers will vote or have the opportunity to vote starting on Sunday. There's a seven-week mail-in period to vote, and they vote yes or no if they want to be part of the union or not. Amazon, for its part, obviously says... The workers there don't need a union. They point to the wage that they start workers off. I think it's like $50.30 an hour, which is above the federal minimum wage and higher comparable to a lot of other places. You can say they give them health care, vision and dental benefits, a retirement plan. So they're touting all these things as a reason for not wanting to go forward with a unionization. The union counters, right? And they they say it isn't really about money, although they wouldn't mind more money, too. But they talk about things like dignity and respect. But, you know, workers in Amazon's warehouses are measured on specific performance metrics. So if you are someone who stows items as they come into the warehouse, you have to stow a certain number of items in a given time period, in an hour. And if you fall below that performance metric, you can be marked up. There are other things where, you know, workers say... The facility in Bessemer, it's in Alabama. It can get hot in the summer. Workers say there have been, you know, workers who've been overheated because of that. There are other, those sorts of complaints as well. And then the other thing that some of the workers have talked about too is we're in the midst of this pandemic. And at the beginning of the pandemic, Amazon 
gave workers a bonus, a $2 an hour bonus. Workers called it hazard pay, although Amazon doesn't call it that. But at the end of May, they Amazon eliminated that, eliminated that. And workers would love to see that bonus come back because, as we all know, the pandemic continues to rage. Let's continue on this just for a little bit more. You mentioned that the warehouse has only been open for about 10 months. Was there anything that sparked this call for unionization or was it just kind of people haven't been happy since it started opening? I know the pandemic plays a huge role in that and there was a lot of safety concerns, but I think Amazon put in almost a billion dollars into coronavirus safety efforts. I think this is across the entire company now, not necessarily just in this one uh, warehouse, but was there something else that might have sparked this or is it is it really just the workers kind of unhappy there? It's interesting because it was surprising that it turned up at a new warehouse and also in the conservative South where unions don't always flourish. So it is a little surprising. But the workers that I talked with have said, you know, it's really about the conditions that they have seen since they started. And I do think a lot of it actually relates to the pandemic. There are two things I think that are going on. One is sort of the obvious one, which is people are scared, right? They're showing up to a job and they see coworkers have the virus and they get scared that they might get it too. And it it affects not just their lives, of course, but their families' lives as well. But I think the other thing that's going on is as the pandemic raged, more and more people started ordering online. And so, you know, you'd get all kinds of things from Amazon, among others, that you might have typically driven to the store to get. And Amazon's made a ton of money off of that, but it's also put a lot of pressure on these workers to produce and to sort of meet the expectations of the customers who are ordering this stuff. They're a huge player, if not the biggest player right now, in logistics, transportation, retail stuff. I mean, I was at the store the other day. We couldn't find anything at the market. And we said, oh, we'll just order it on Amazon. You know, it's like that default thought that a lot of people have. The big fear for Amazon, they just added 400,000 workers during the pandemic. They have 1.1 million workers worldwide. And in Europe, it's a lot different. Unions are kind of enshrined into the work culture there. So a lot of Amazon workers over there are already unionized. And the big fear for Amazon is that if one big warehouse like this goes to unions, then it's going to spark these fights across the country. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think that's why Amazon is particularly concerned about this. You see it in the the methods they are engaging in to try and discourage workers from joining this union. But I talked with Rich Trump, who is the head of the AFL-CIO for this piece, and they are supporting this union drive, which is being led by the retail warehouse and department store union. But the AFL is getting behind it because they know the consequences of this. They know that if they can convince one Amazon warehouse to join a union, others will as well. Let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen next and what's happening now, too. The mail-in balloting for these workers to say, you know, if they want to be part of a union now, begins on February 8th. And a lot of workers are reporting that, you know, there's a lot of anti-union messaging there at the workplace. It follows them to the bathroom and these very limited bathroom breaks that they say they get. You know, like inside the stall, there's a a little poster or something that says, do you want to pay your union dues? Where's that money going to go to? And this kind of gets into all this interesting part of it. You know, Alabama is a right-to-work state, so you don't really have to pay union dues, but they're making that an issue. You've spoken to a lot of people there from that plant, and a lot of them do say they do support the union. How, how has all this been playing out? So as you say, the vote starts on Sunday, or the ballots are mailed out to workers on Sunday, and the voting period lasts about seven weeks. And it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Because of the pandemic, the NLRB is allowing 
for mail-in balloting, which is something they typically might not have done. And so it changes a little bit of the dynamics of the campaign. But right now, Amazon is working very hard to convince the workers in that warehouse not to vote for the union. And, you know, as you mentioned, I have something in my article about Amazon putting up a flyer on the inside of a bathroom stall, or on, on the inside of many bathroom stalls in their warehouse. They're also texting workers fairly regularly. They're engaging in what is often a common practice during union campaigns, and that is what are these mandatory meetings forcing workers to come into training rooms and they get a half an hour or longer session about why the union is a terrible thing. Now, what's interesting is we'll have to see what happens starting on February 8th, because Amazon then is required to end those captive audience meetings. That's what they're called. They can engage in other types of electioneering, but that has to end. And so there will be this ongoing sort of churn of information that comes out over the next seven weeks as both Amazon and the union try to convince members to join their their cause. I mean, it's going to be an interesting story to follow. The union said that they had over 3,000 workers that assigned cards, you know, saying that they want them to represent them. They did acknowledge that a lot of those people had have since left. So who knows where that true number stands, but it seems like it could be a very close call. There are others. You mentioned the article two people that do support Amazon on this and don't necessarily want to unionize. But, you know, just kind of the whole point of this, if this warehouse goes that way, it could lead to other warehouses wanting to unionize as well for one of our biggest companies now. So it's an interesting story and we'll have to follow it and see what goes on there. Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar. Our approach in Moderna is going to be to develop a booster vaccine so that if the South African variant or any other variant becomes a concern, we'll be able to offer a way to identify that, prevent it from hiding from the vaccine. Joining us now is Brian Resnick, senior science reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Hey. Wanted to talk about these UK and South African and Brazil variants that we're hearing a lot about. You know, they're spreading all over. I know in the United States right now, we have seen the UK variant popping up. I think they say that by March, that could be the dominant strain here. The South African variant was just detected in South Carolina. So they're making their way over here. They're starting to spread around. But one of the big questions that we're seeing out there is, you know, why now? How did these variants pop up? And we know that the virus is constantly mutating. Every time it replicates in a person and passes along, it's constantly mutating. But something happened where these variants took rise and they're a little, maybe a little more adept at avoiding the immune system or infecting people. But what's happening that we're seeing these pop up? For as long as this pandemic has been going on, the virus has been changing. And every time it gets into a human body, it makes copies of itself. And every time it makes a copy, it can make a copy error. And that's like the source of mutations. That's the source of like how things change. And so it does seem a little peculiar that throughout the pandemic, there have been like different variants, there have been different changes in the virus, but they haven't like stood out to scientists until now. They haven't like been associated with with concerning things. So the things about these variants that are concerning is in the case of that B117, which is the UK variant or sometimes called that, that one seems to be more transmissible. Those other ones you mentioned, you know, there are some worries about maybe these variants are getting a little bit better at evading our our immune systems. 
But, you know, to answer the question of why now, well, one big answer to that is just like there's been a lot of time. (laughs) You know, we can think about this in, in, in a few ways, like one, like the as the virus spreads between person to person, it can accumulate more changes through natural mutation process. And, you know, if you're looking at a virus that has spread to 90 plus million confirmed cases around the globe, that's a lot of chances to change. You know, that doesn't explain all of it, but it does explain some of it that you would expect the diversity, the genetic diversity of the virus, the different forms it could possibly take to increase over time. And one of those things, kind of adding on to that, a lot of this has to do with time and the amount of times that the virus has been replicating, but also partial human immunity, right? A lot of people have gotten it. We have the vaccines rolling out now. So that's starting to build up also. So you kind of pressure the virus to make its own changes to keep on living, basically. And that's kind of one of the things that they suspect with the Brazil variant. It might have changed just enough where you could be more susceptible to getting COVID-19 if you've already had it, just because of the way it's changed. What we're describing here is evolution, and evolution has two components, and one is change, one is variation, and so that was, I was just describing, you know, throughout the pandemic, the the virus has a lot of opportunities to change, but that doesn't explain necessarily why we see some variants more than others. And for that, you know, that's the other half of evolution, which is selection or natural selection, which is that you know, the, now we're operating in an environment where maybe some of these variants have a little bit of an advantage. So I think in particular, this is what the concern is in Brazil, where there have been areas in Brazil that where that there had horrible outbreaks, huge proportions of the population were infected. And now there seems to be this new variant that seems to still be infecting people. And, and the idea there is that there's possibly a lot of, of immunity there, and that immunity is acting as a selection pressure. So if you're a viral variant that's a little bit better at evading you know, the immune response that has been generated so far, then maybe you start to like, gain a little foothold. You start to outcompete the other variants. And then suddenly, you, know, you have a huge portion or huge population of people carrying a variant that looks a little different than the variants that were circulating last year. One of the other interesting parts of this, and and as we keep mentioning, you know, a lot of this just happens over time and with the virus mutating every single time. But there's some theories as to why these variants might have gotten stronger. And one of them has to do that it might have emerged in an immunocompromised person. So it had some time to maybe learn how to get around the immune system in one of these people. And the other one has to do with uh, maybe using convalescent plasma. We're using those treatments as part of putting antibodies into people, but also one of these things where, you know, it's sensing these antibodies. So it's learning how to get around those things. When I talk to scientists about this, the way they, they put it to me is like rare things can start to happen when the pandemic has raged on for such a long time. So, you know, you mentioned an immunocompromised person. And so there are some people that when they get infected, like their immune systems aren't as strong as others and and they can put up a little bit of a fight, but not the complete fight. And what that leads to in that person is that they end up living with the virus for a really long time. So, 
in the normal course of an illness, someone gets sick and infected with the virus, and then their system clears them of that virus, you know, hopefully within a matter of like a week or two. But some people can have that virus kind of fighting in their immune system, fighting with their immune system for like weeks and weeks and months and months. And so when I said like a rare thing can happen, like, you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, we've been trying to protect vulnerable people and hopefully immunocompromised people have been mostly um, staying safe. But, you know, a virus can get into immunocompromised person. It can, the longer it is in that fight with antibodies that are kind of hurting it, but, you know, not completely eliminating it, the more chances it has to mutate and change within any individual body, the more chances it has to learn how to completely thwart or more, or not completely, but thwart a little bit more of that immune response. So like an immunocompromised person is kind of like a little bit of um, of a, of a, stage for evolution to happen because a person can be infected for such a long time. Again, that's like really rare. Like a lot of (laughs) things have to happen. That person, that person would also have to pass it on to somebody else. So, you know, after it's been kind of working in there, I have a friend who had a kidney transplant and he's basically been on lockdown for about a year for fear of contracting COVID-19 and all. So luckily he hasn't, but you know, that's always been a worry. And then, you know, how do you treat it if he does come down with it? So a lot of this has to do these variants. We find out about them by doing this uh, genetic sequencing of the virus. And with coronavirus specifically, it hadn't really been done that much. I know with the flu, they've been doing it for a long time. But that's why a lot of experts are pushing for these things to be looked into more and, and constantly sequence these genomes so that we know when something is popping up so we can then attack it. And we're seeing vaccine makers on the other side. Moderna saying we need a booster shot. We might tweak the vaccine to deal with these variants as they pop up. You kind of need two things there. Like, yes, you need greater surveillance of the viral genetics. And the U.S. does lag on this compared to other countries that are really good at it, like the U.K. But you need to match that data with what's happening in the real world. Like I said, Variants can pop up all the time, and sometimes they're just meaningless. Sometimes, like, you know, a virus can have random genetic changes that don't really make it any more dangerous. So what you really need is, like, a really careful way to study this. So if there is a new variant, you can ask a question like, oh, is this new variant associated with a larger and larger proportion of cases? You can ask a question, oh, is this new variant associated with a more severe disease course or reinfections? Is it more associated with infecting people who had already been infected with the virus? And and so, yeah, the surveillance is one part of it, but it's also just in general, like we need really good data. We need to understand the, how the pandemic is progressing across the country. Yeah. And that's exactly what's going on with these. You know, we understand the UK variant a little bit more than we do the one from South Africa and Brazil, and we're constantly be hearing about these as they start to possibly take hold. Uh, you know, as I said, the South African variant has just been detected in South Carolina. So we'll see how much that one has a chance to spread. Brian Resnick, senior science reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.